All right, go to 1 Kings 18. We are starting our series, The Prophets, and we are going to take a look at Elijah tonight, and next week, Lord willing, Isaiah, then Jeremiah, then Ezekiel, and then the last prophet is actually John the Baptist in the New Testament. So five weeks, and uh, we'll look at them. And I, I kind of want to, what I want to do with those prophets really is just at least to give you a glimpse of who they were. So I've just chosen segments of what they have written, and we'll talk about those things um, as we go. But I really wanted you to just kind of grapple with who they were, and uh, as we'll see tonight, there's a connection with <laughs> where we're at in our society today and the prophetic ministry we need to have. So First uh, Kings chapter 18, verse 17, and I'll read through verse 40. And then we'll pray. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. These are the words of God. Now it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of Yahweh and you have followed the Baals. So now, then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you be limping between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves, and cut it up and place it on the wood, but place no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and put it on the wood, and I will not place fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God." And all the people answered and said, That is a good word. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call in the name of your God, but place no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped about the altar which they had made. Now it happened at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or relieving himself, or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and gashed themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. Now it happened when noon had passed that they had prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of Yahweh, which had been pulled down. Then Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and placed it on the wood. And he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Now it happened at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your slave, and I have done all these things as your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people saw it and fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Let's pray. 
Our Father and God, we thank you for your unending grace and mercy towards us. We have gathered here together, huddled around your words, that we might know how it is you have called us to live. We confess that your kingdom has a myriad of demands, and we do desire to fill each and every one, but we also know that we are helpless without your presence. So may your spirit fill us that we might be sustained. Help us as we peer into the text with joy and anticipation. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, as I mentioned already, we're kicking off the five-week series on the prophets, and, and one of the main goals, I really want us to get familiar with who these prophets were. That's going to require some character study and analysis, and I also want to describe what the prophets accomplished, because as we'll see even next week, there's some surprising things that the prophets did, almost weird things, we would think, socially odd, strange things. Tied throughout will be an explanation, of course, of the where, the why, and the when, those types of things as well. But the reason, that, uh, the reason for diving into this study in this way is that I believe that we are. We are living in similar times. Uh, the social problems, social problems are always downstream from theological problems. Coupled with institutional crises, those things interface in such a way to create a perfect storm in any society. So large-scale apostasy, rejection of God, all of that then creates social problems. And then you have institutional problems, and that's the perfect storm. That's the perfect storm. Bad theology leads to bad philosophy, which leads to bad social practices and so on. Now, I want to sort of dip our toes into some philosophy, mostly so you kind of understand uh, how I'm going about assessing you know, our social issues that we have today. For thousands of years, men, including women, have tried to figure out what it is that ties this world together. What is it that ties this world together? We're, we're different than the animals, we know. Um, you know, dogs don't gather around and, and, and decide what's on the menu next week, <laughs> you know. We're different than the animals, we know that. We can express things like love and hate. Um, we see the seasons change around us. We experience the world in certain capacities. Our, our brains are capable of quite a bit. We can think up a lot of things. But the challenge, however, is trying to tie it all together when sin is the working reality of all men at all times. But how can, how can one tie it all together without God's self-attesting revelation? That's really where Christianity comes in and says, you guys, if you don't have Christ, you can't tie it all together. You can't really make sense of this. And that's the answer, is you can't tie it together. So men have tried to comprehend, comprehend with the best of their abilities how to bring all of temporal reality together in a cogent and a coherent system of thought, but to no avail. Um, probably one of the greatest philosophers outside of Plato and Aristotle of 2,000 years ago was Immanuel Kant. And you, you sort of have, if you don't really understand Kant, you don't understand even modern thought. And in Kant's mind, like others before him, he believed that the rationality of man takes supremacy over everything. The mind of man is like the sovereign thing in the universe. And Kant took it even further. He said that we have to reason autonomously on our own without any restraints. That's the only way. Meaning, don't put in your mind this idea of God, just sort of do your own mind work. That was sort of the Kantian system. And he said, you have to do it that way. You can't assume there's a God. You can't presuppose those things. But the problem is, though, the sin that we've get, gotten ourselves into has, in fact, touched the minds of men. The mind itself is infected by sin, contra to what Kant and the other existentialists and those philosophers wanted to believe. So I bring this up, just dipping our toes there for a minute, to conclude a few things. First, sin does in fact touch every area of life. We know this. It affects all sorts of things. When Adam, who is our federal head, our covenantal head, when he sinned, the world was plunged into darkness and chaos. But even the next day, they got up and, you know, they were outside of the garden, but you know, they went to work, they, they lived life, they had children, those things happened. But sin came into the world. But God worked inside of the darkness and the chaos to bring light. And the way he brought light was bringing Abraham and his family and their descendants into the world. 
So by choosing Israel and covenanting with them, God was pushing back the sin. God chose to push back the sin of Adam through having covenanted relationships with people. But that sin, we know, touches everything, which is why we believe in total depravity, one of the hallmark doctrines of Reformed theology, total depravity. Sin corrupts man's heart. The heart is the Archimedean point. That's the center, the RK. That's the foundation of everything of our existence is our heart, not our mind. And thus, though, when the heart is polluted, our thinking, our feeling, our doing, and all of our expressing is polluted as a result. So sin affected the totality of man. That's what total depravity teaches. Sin affected the totality of man. It didn't erase his image bearing completely, but it polluted it thoroughly. So when sin entered in the world, it wasn't like man stopped being man, made in God's image. It just meant that that image was twisted, contorted. It was polluted. Um, so that's the first thing. Sin touched everything. Second, and due to that comprehensive pollution of sin in the world, man needed a redeemer. Man needs a redeemer, which is what Christ has come to do. So Jesus' death and resurrection, followed by his ascension to the throne and the subsequent administering of his Holy Spirit to his people, that those actions, what we call the gospel, restructures the hearts of men. Okay, so sin goes to the heart. It affects the whole of your being. Christ's regenerative work through his spirit goes in and it literally restructures the heart. It changes your heart. So you, you love the things you used to hate, you hate the things you used to love. That's what salvation does in us. It restructures our, our heart. And that's because the heart is the center. The heart is the center of, of all men. And the heart is where all of man's thinking comes from. So you might say that the heart is the ground motive. It's the center of what we do in our thinking and feeling, all of our predication, all of our expression, all of our living, all of it comes from our heart. All of life springs forth from the heart, Proverbs 4 says. So after the Holy Spirit apprehends us, the heart changes. Our hearts are motivated by the self-revelatory Word of God, and thus we can, and only then, build a culture that honors God. So... This is a slight detour, but it's necessary because I wanted to preface our discussion on the prophets because the prophetic task that we are called to requires us to go after the hearts of men. All right, I've been at the abortion clinics. I've seen what evil looks like very up and closely when you see someone who is so bent on destroying that boy or little girl in their womb, and you see the anger that is being expressed right now. Uh, the, the night after that document was leaked, the Supreme Court steps were swarmed with people, just everybody screaming and yelling at each other. That's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. So our task as a prophetic ministry, as a prophetic church, as prophetic people being restored in Christ is to go after the hearts of men. And we can learn a thing or two from the prophets. We can learn who, and, uh, who they were and what they did and, and what did they do. Well, one, one writer says this, The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. I'm going to break that down. In other words, we are trying to arouse the glory of God in the hearts of men who need a heart transplant. That's what the prophets were doing. That's what we should be doing through the preaching of the gospel, as well as the law's social capabilities for human flourishing, our prophetic witness must directly challenge the prevailing narratives of the day. All right, we, I know we were somewhat, uh, it was bounced around in, in our uh, chat this weekend, but that's really where this all comes down to. Prophetic witness challenges the prevailing narratives of the day. Christianity has something to say about what's going on out in, out in the world. Now this will inevitably mean that no one political party will be our home, for example. And why is that? Well, because the kingdom of God takes precedent over all things. The kingdom goes first, long before it's a Republican-Democrat debate. The kingdom goes first. And that doesn't mean that the kingdom isn't involved in those things. Obviously, it is to be involved in those things. It just means that those things are either with Christ or against Christ, and it's our job to make that known. Now, one more introductory comment is necessary. 
The prophets delivered the Word of God in three categories. The prophets delivered the Word of God in three distinct categories. First, they brought a covenant lawsuit against the people and even the surrounding nations, and that covenant lawsuit was what we call prosecution. So if, if you're a note taker, I have three Ps, uh, like a good Baptist, three points, three Ps. Not even a Baptist, but anyway. They brought per, uh, prosecution. This lawsuit pronounced God's impending judgment. So they're like prosecuting attorneys. They go to the people of God and they say, you are sinning, you have violated God's law, you deserve God's wrath, I am here to deliver that to you. I am prosecuting you. That's what the covenant lawsuit was. The second one is when they brought that covenant lawsuit, they also brought the covenant promises, what we call persuasion. So they prosecuted people, but they were also trying to persuade them. All right? And this is where the Christians today could learn a lot from the prophets. We need to persuade people. So that means we have to have intelligent conversations. We have to sort of know what we're talking about. You can't just say, well, I just don't like abortion. Well, let's talk about what it is. What is, what is our philosophy of life? What does God's word have to say? Let's try to persuade people, not just yell at them, because they're just yelling out there in the streets. I don't know if you've seen footage, but it's like mind-numbing, even here in Warrington yesterday, just standing there yelling at each other, looking like a bunch of doofuses. Like, who wants, let's talk. Let me persuade you. Let's reason together. So prophets brought prosecution. They told people about God's judgment. They also tried to persuade them, to bring them into the covenant. And this was a call to faithfulness. It was a call to obedience. But third, the prophets would use future prediction as a means of amplifying the prosecution and the persuasion. So prediction is the third P. Prediction, though, really wasn't the main driving force of their ministry. It was a call to covenant faithfulness in all things that drove them. So they would prosecute the people. They would also try to persuade them. And oftentimes they would offer a prediction. If you don't follow God's word, Assyria is going to conquer you. If you don't repent, Babylon is going to destroy you. And those things happened. Jesus did the same thing in his prophetic work. He told Jerusalem to repent. If you don't, they're going to surround you and destroy you. What happened a generation later? Jerusalem was destroyed. So prosecution, persuasion, and prediction. So Elijah, that's who we're talking about tonight. I had considered doing Moses because Moses is actually called a prophet in Deuteronomy 34, but Elijah is actually like another Moses. Some of the stuff that Elijah does is very Moses-like, as we'll see. So let's look at our text. Eliyahu, Eliyahu, Elijah. He was a Tishbite from the land of Gilead, and that was located on the east side of the Jordan. The Jordan River connected to the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. The river connected here. Israel was on this side. I'm doing the map backwards for your sake. Israel was on this side, but on the western side, eastern side, this is confusing, uh, that's where Gilead was from. Gilead was sort of situated central on the east side of the river in between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea in the south. Elijah's name, Eliyahu, means Yahweh is God, or my God is Yahweh. Uh, I've always loved that name, hence my oldest boy. Uh, the curious thing about him is that he simply shows up on the scene in, in, in 1 Kings 17. He just shows up. He's, he's here, he's present, and he's active. Um, Elijah is, is strange in this regard. He is a very intriguing person. Uh, he, he's even elusive. He's rugged in what he wears. That's Remember John the Baptist dressed with camel-type clothing and ate locusts, and, and that's sort of how Elijah was as well, a rugged person. He was not at all a timid man. He was a very uh, bold and courageous type of man. He was a fiercely Yahwist prophet in the tradition of Moses, as one author said. Now, what was incredible about Elijah was the fact that he was bold, he was full of energy, and he is, is basically exhibited remarkable strength. His endurance was unmatched. He just was a driven man. He was set on fire by the Lord, and he did not care about what, anything, what anybody else thought. Um, his ministry was during the time of the troubled reign of King Ahab, and that was during the ninth century. So we're going back a few, you know, a couple thousand years here the 9th century B.C. 
We know nothing about Elijah's family other than he was a Tishbite from Gilead. He's, we, we don't know much about him. We don't know his family. We don't know his parents. We know the parents of like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but we're not told anything about Elijah's family or his lineage. He is, in this sense, God's man. It's like no time to describe what in the world his family looks like. Here's Elijah. Here's what he did. It's that sort of feel in the narrative as you read 1 Kings. Now, the reign of King Ahab was tumultuous at best. It was a time of syncretism. Syncretism, which means that the people, along with her leaders, they tried to synthesize and bring together the worship of Yahweh, Jehovah God, with the worship of Baal. So think of many Christians today who want the worship of God, but the worship of the state. Same sort of syncretistic nonsense. Now, Jeroboam had introduced all of this syncretistic worship several chapters ago. Ahab simply comes on the scene and he keeps it alive and well. Now, Ahab's, King Ahab's biggest issue was his wife, Jezebel. You've probably heard of her. <laughs> Not great, all right? Um, she's a princess of Tyre. She was outside of the covenant, a foreigner, yet Ahab marries her. In chapter 16, uh, Ahab built a temple of Baal in Samaria in the north as a way to please his pagan wife, which provoked the anger of God more than any other king prior, the text says. And if you recall from our study in Judges, um, Baalism is like a humanism. It's, it's related to this fertility cult of human sexuality and, and the weather. Uh, but Ahab's downfall wasn't that he didn't try to love God. Ahab's downfall wasn't that he didn't try to love God. It's that he tried to love God by tolerating religious pluralism in Israel. Yahweh cl claims exclusive allegiance to himself, exclusive allegiance to his covenant, uh, to collaborate with other gods and to permit other rival worldviews was akin to apostasy. So that's the syncretistic worship of Israel during this time. And the question that looms over Elijah's ministry is this. Who has the power of giving and taking life? Who has the power of giving and taking life? That's the showdown of Elijah and Ahab and the people of Israel. Elijah was an ardent even austere defender of Yahweh. He cared about God's name and the holiness of his name. Uh, his zeal unmatched. He ran up against Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel, and from there he demanded and insisted on the exclusive claims and kingship of Yahweh. Now, prior to our text here in 1 Kings 18, back in chapter 17, Elijah predicted a drought. It's one of the first things we learn about Elijah. He shows up, he predicts a drought. A drought comes, and that's because Yahweh, not Baal, is in charge of fertility and weather. So we already have the scene set. The drought came as a result of Ahab's apostasy. The drought was a judgment on the land. Now afterwards, you may remember Elijah, he, he gets food from the widow of Zarephath, and uh, Yahweh has food, the land doesn't, but he goes and there's a miracle done. And while he's there, he raises her son from the dead. Again, who gives life? Yahweh gives life. Yahweh gives food. Yahweh gives water. Yahweh gives us these gifts. Now, after this, following this, God tells Elijah to show himself to Ahab, and then he would send the rain. Now, Elijah meets up with Obadiah. Obadiah was a prophet, and he was a lord, a governor of sorts in the house of, of Ahab. And Obadiah was a righteous man. He was a good man. He defied Ahab and because he feared Yahweh more than the king. So Obadiah is a good man. Elijah meets with him. Elijah meets with Obadiah and he asks for a meeting with the king. Hey, prophet of Israel here, can you give me a meeting with the king? Now, Obadiah is fearful because if Elijah doesn't come, then Ahab's going to kill him. So you have to come. You want a meeting with the king, you got to come. But Obadiah is faithful. We also know that Obadiah had, he had hid 100 of Yahweh's prophets so that Jezebel couldn't kill them. She was a wicked, wicked, wicked witch of the East, I guess. <laughs> she was a terrible one. She had tried to persecute and kill the prophets, and, and Obadiah hid 100 of them. So they asked for a meeting. The meeting is set, and that's where we pick it up in verse 17. Ahab famously says to Elijah, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? One of my favorite verses. Ahab's charge is a religious charge of blasphemy. In his mind, Elijah's the one who's causing the drought. Elijah's the one who's causing all these problems in Israel. 
Certainly Elijah is a godly troublemaker, but Ahab, he doesn't have a covenantal understanding of history. He's, he, he's, his mind is elsewhere. Elijah responds in verse 18. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of Yahweh and you have followed the Baals. So it's, it's Ahab's syncretistic religion, melding Christianity with humanism, that sort of thing, that has brought the drought. It's Ahab's pagan alliances with other nations. It's his pagan wife and her bloodlust for killing the prophets that has brought all of this calamity. Note that Elijah doesn't back down. Elijah doesn't back down. I would love a meeting at the White House. Anyway, side note. Really want that to happen. At any rate, uh, Elijah, he orders this showdown at uh, Mount Carmel. A great, great scripture here. He instructs Ahab to bring, about, bring out the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah. They bring them to the mountain. Um, Ahab actually listens to Elijah here, and so he, he gets on board with it and brings them along. And once the prophets come, the sons of Israel come. So maybe tens of thousands, we don't know. They came to Mount Carmel. They all want to see what this contest is going to be about. And Elijah preaches in verse 21. He says, How long are you going to be limping between two opinions. If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. What's with the limping between two opinions here? What's, what's with this one foot in one religion, one foot in the other religion? How, how, how are you going to function in this type of thing? And well, there's silence from the people. They're quiet. They have nothing to say. Why? Because they're cowards. So the scene is set. The prophets are there, 850 on Team Baal, one on Team Yahweh. Israelites silence because, well, they don't have anything to say because they're all following the wrong religion too. Now, Elijah challenges them essentially to a contest of deities. Each side prepares a young bull as a sacrifice to place it on the altar. Elijah, go ahead, you, you go first, right? Elijah tells them to call upon their God. Call upon your God to send fire down and consume the sacrifice and then I'll do the same thing and it'll be a great contest, all right? So who's, you know, whoever can produce the fire, he says in verse 21, he's God. It's a showdown. It's like a mixed martial arts spectacle. I mean, it's just with sacrifices. So who's in charge of fertility? Who's in charge of the weather? Who's really in charge of things? Whoever wins this contest, he's God. It'll be great. We'll see. So all morning, the pagan prophets, they call out to Baal. There's no response. They call for hours, several hours. Probably 6 a.m. to noon. Six hours of just, Baal, answer us. Where are you? Bring your fire down. No response. Just silence. And note in verse 26, this is one of the reasons I like the LSB, but in 26, the pagan prophets of Baal limped about the altar which they had made. That same word is used back in, chapter, or in verse 21 with regard to the limping between two opinions. So the same Hebrew word brings it out. I, I really appreciate the appreciate that translation. So they're hand-wringing, they're indecisive, they're fickle, they're absurd, <laughs> their God is broken. <laughs> Maybe the warranty expired, I don't know. So at noon, several hours of waiting, Elijah, you know what he does? He taunts them. I love this scripture. He taunts and mocks the prophets of Baal, su suggesting, well, maybe your God's busy. Maybe he's out golfing or something, you know. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's in the port john right? Maybe, maybe he's on a trip or something. Or worse yet, in verse 27, maybe he's sleeping. Now, the, the psalmist tells us that Yahweh never sleeps, which is actually a good thing, because we need to sleep. We, de we depend on him. But apparently, they're, they're God sleeping. So in an act of desperation, they cut themselves with knives and swords, in verse 28. Now, this cutting could have been possibly castration as well. Ceremonial cuts in the body meant to encourage Baal to act. So maybe if we shed our own blood, Baal will act. So they start doing that nonsense. So hours go by and well into the late afternoon, and there is still silence from Baal. And guess who still remains silent? The sons of Israel. Okay? They're being forced to reckon with their apostasy. You're quiet. Yeah, well, who else is quiet? Baal, the God you claim to worship. So limping between two opinions is difficult. 
And it's difficult. Jesus said you can't serve two masters because it makes us want all the perceived benefits of both sides without having to really fully commit ourselves to just one thing. Right? We can take advantage. We'll just take advantage of this aspect about Baal and then Yahweh. And, but there's silence. And this is what Elijah wanted the whole time. He wanted to shut the mouths of the false gods and their followers. So now it's Yahweh's time to shine. The people came near. Elijah gets the altar ready. He reclaims the whole area for God. Takes 12 stones, the symbol of Israel, places them as the foundation of a new altar to Yahweh. Uh, verse 31, he reminds them, Israel shall be your name. A reminder of the covenant. This is who Yahweh is. He's been faithful to you despite your apostasy. The stones are in place. He sets the wood up on this huge altar. I don't know how big it was. It may have been quite a massive altar, enough to get a young bull up on there. He tells Israel to fill four pitchers of water. Four pitchers of water. Dump it on the altar. Okay? Four. And then he does it three times. Okay? So it's sopping wet. And uh, the water flowed around the altar. It saturated the altar. Everyone knows that fire doesn't burn water. Right? Everyone knows also that water is in short supply during a drought. Who's in control here? At the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah offered up a prayer. He reminded them of the covenant God had made with his people. Elijah is a courageous man of God. He's a slave of Yahweh, he says about himself. And he does all of this as an act of obedience. And look at verse 37. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. After this, the fire of Yahweh fell and, fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. The whole thing, boom, gone. The stones. Imagine the power required in that fire to consume even the stones. Gone. It, so it wasn't just fire, it was fire, right? God's fire. And the Bible tells us God is a consuming fire. So the people, they fell on their faces. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Verse 39, and the prophets of Baal, they were not to escape for their idolatry and, and their murderous persecutions. They were deserving of the death penalty. So guess who gives, to, uh, who gives them the death penalty? Elijah. They round him up and Elijah slaughters all of the prophets near the brook of Kishon. Now, just to summarize a little bit of what happens after, because he comes on the scene in 1 Kings 17. By 2 Kings 2, he's gone. Elijah announces the end of the three-year drought. A massive rainstorm sweeps the land. And uh, Yahweh is the real storm god, not Baal. But the difference is, though, Yahweh is different than nature. He is in control of it. He's not a part of nature like the Baalism. Ahab told his wife what took place. She's mad. <laughs> of course she'd be mad. Their gods just got shown up big time. She wants prophets of Yahweh dead by tomorrow. Elijah then flees to the desert. He finds a tree. He gets depressed because he believes he's the only prophet left. So imagine a courageous victory like that, and then all of a sudden the persecutions turned up a little bit. So he runs down actually toward Mount Sinai, by the way. They want him dead. He, God sustains him. He travels 40 days. Who else traveled for the 40 days? You remember the rain and then the 40 years in the desert. But he travels to Mount Sinai where Moses had given the law. He's just like Moses here. While he's in the cave, Yahweh visits him. And he visits him, though, not in the earthquake or the windstorm or the fire. But look at verse 12 of chapter 19. Flip, flip to there. Chapter 19, verse 12. Then after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a thin, gentle whisper. So God's in all of it, right? I mean, he's in all of the big things. How could he not be? He's in control of it all. But the point here is that you have to be devoted to listening to the voice of God, which is oftentimes very quiet to the point where you can barely hear it. You can barely hear it. And if your life is not looking great right now, for whatever reason, you're probably not listening to this, the whisper of God. It's not loud like the Baalists. It's not cutting yourself and 
lamenting over the altar. Yahweh offered, Elijah offered a prayer to Yahweh. The fire dropped. Bang, it's over. The showdown's done. Prophets are dead. God is in this whisper. But Elijah isn't alone. God reminds him that there are 7,000 other faithful men and women in Israel. Afterwards, Elijah gets a disciple. Remember his name? Kids, you remember who Elijah's disciple was? Elisha. Yes, Elisha. Uh, Social issues plague the nation. Ahab um, and Jezebel murder Naboth and take his vineyard. A, A gross example of the problem of eminent domain, by the way. In chapter 21, Elijah confronts Ahab in the vineyard and tells him that he and his family are going to be destroyed for their heinous sins. Ahab does repent, and in God's grace, judgment comes later to his house after his death. But the last we see of Elijah is in 1 Kings chapter 2. Who here remembers how Elijah died? It's a trick question. <laughs> yes, Kaysen, you win the prize of being right. <laughs> Elisha watches a chariot of fire carry Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind. So two people we know who had never physically died in history. Elijah's the second, Enoch's the first. So as quickly as Elijah came on the scene, he disappears just as fast. It's amazing, this prophet. Elijah, like many of the judges, he was a Baal fighter. He was a Baal fighter in the spirit of Moses, just like Gideon. Um, Elijah was sort of this elusive wanderer coming back, coming and going here and there, everywhere. And then he just vanishes at the end of his life. And Elisha is given a double portion of the Holy Spirit uh, like a firstborn who gets the double portion of the inheritance, and Elisha continues the ministry. Now, what about Elijah? Let's think about this. At the end of Malachi, Elijah was expected to return again as the forerunner of Yahweh's return to Zion. Now, some people thought that Jesus was Elijah. That was in Matthew 16. And John the Baptist was asked by people in John 1 and chapter 1 whether or not he was Elijah. So everybody knew and expected Elijah was coming back at some point as a forerunner to the Messiah who was to come. Steve read Matthew 17. Who appears when Jesus is transfigured? Moses and Elijah, which suggests that they are representatives of the law and the prophets. Elijah is the representative of all the prophets. Moses, Elijah, they're the forerunners. And Matthew 5, excuse me, James 5.17, that Elijah was like us and he was a model for prayer. And we should mimic Elijah's prayer life. And that's the ministry of Elijah. So let's pull out some things here. As mentioned before, the prophetic task is a difficult one. Yet in Christ, that is exactly what we are called to do. Our world right now is a mess and we are called to be prophets in it. The, to be a prophet is to proclaim truth to proclaim the self-contained, absolute God who is sovereign over all things, including man's institutions. Right? We, we don't care what the Supreme Court says in large part when it comes to these issues because rightfully, if they overturn Roe, well, Alito is right. It's not constitutional anyway, but you know, what's that? it didn't stop him from a whole host of other unconstitutional edicts. But nonetheless, God is sovereign. He is the supreme being over the Supreme Court. We acknowledge that as Christians. The buck stops with God, not whatever one man in an unelected robe says, right? Prophetic proclamation, as exhibited by Elijah, is the staging and performance of a contest between two rival views of the world. And it is our effort to demonstrate that Jesus Christ and his law word accounts for the world. It accounts for everything in the world more consistently, more robustly than the humanist paradigms that try to shield themselves from any critique. Okay, there's a reason why you get in a hotly contested debate out front of an abortion clinic and they just want to yell at you. There's a reason. What were the bailiffs doing? Just yelling for their God. Yelling, 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 yelling. No ability to reason. We're not talking about reason and logic and good and bad arguments. We're talking about a bloodlust that is bursting out like a dam that is broken. It's just emotion. It's just evil. 
But we need to go and say, no, the humanist paradigm you're working with is decrepit. Your program doesn't work. It ends up in a status hell like Nazi Germany. That's what it ends up like. That's the best you can produce, communism, right? Christianity says something completely different. It's better, it's far superior, morally and ethically pure, and it actually gives people the freedom they so long for. That's what we do. We're the Elijahs in the world saying, yeah, you're a bunch of Baalists screaming and yelling, and your God's terrible. It's broken too. So the contestation and disputation that prophetic witness invites in the world is dramatic. It's sometimes unconventional. Unconventional. I'm convinced that we need to figure out a way for the people of Fauquier County to try to figure out what are the Christians going to do next. They should be trying to figure out our program. Now, for example, back to the debate on abortion. We are, like it or not, we are in a contest in that. This contest will require a single-minded focus and loyalty to God and His Word, no matter the consequences. Uh, there is no witness in the world apart from word and sacram sacrament, right? There is no witness apart from the fidelity to God's kingdom. We can't do any witnessing without being anchored in the Word of God. And far too many Christians have abdicated their responsibility to their preborn neighbor, and this is because many have ab abdicated their responsibility to the world. They're not involved in these issues because they're just generally uninvolved as it is. They're too busy with their fog machines and skinny jeans. So to have a prophetic witness, to have a prophetic witness, we can learn this from Elijah, is to be utterly consumed by God and His demands. What, what, what should be on the forefront of your mind tomorrow morning, Monday morning, you go to work? God has a demand on my life. I need to fulfill it. That's, that's what we're supposed to be thinking. Not, oh, it's another day. Well, how can I please myself? What does God require of me? If one is consumed by self-sufficiency or by the postmodern longing for self-invention or perhaps consumed with a fear of man, whatever it is, then one is confused by a rival unbiblical paradigm. You're working from the wrong thing. Your heart is latched on to the wrong thing. If what marks your life is not the priority of Christ and the missionary activity of the church, then perhaps you've been limping between two opinions. Consider the relationship. Logos, pathos, ethos, um, or ethos, as it were. Generally speaking, logos in sort of philosophy, but also people talk about this in public speaking and things, but the logos pertains to the structure of reason and logic. Pathos usually refers to your passion or your emotion, right? And then you have the ethos, which is in reference to the structure of, of authority and power and the character of the, of the individual. So logos is the structure of reason and logic. Pathos tends to be more like your emotions or your passion. Athos refers to your character, who you are, the power, the authority you exhibit, that sort of thing. God does not revel, excuse me, God does not reveal himself in the world as an abstraction, some concept of God, you know, oh, God's kind of whatever. But instead, he reveals himself as a personal, intimate individual, uh, the Godhead, the triune Godhead, in relationship to men in creation. So God created not because he needed anything. You know, the gods of the Greeks, if you've ever studied the gods of the Greeks, they're egotistical, they're self-righteous, they're generally inept, uh, they're cowards. That's not how God is. Um, men who follow gods like that, they, they reflect them, so they're cowards and they're egotistical. <laughs> but our God is our, entirely different. Um, in, in the triune God, there is no trichotomy or division between, well, this is the logos, this is the pathos of God, this is the ethos of God. There's no distinction there because they all reflect and presuppose each other. For example, let me give you an example. God is the God of justice. No one doubts that. Scripture reveals it. God is the God of justice. So his pathos, his emotion that he chooses to reveal is ethical and it is good. So if he's the God of justice and he hates abortion, it's a good thing to take that position because it's God's position. So God is absolutely and entirely personal. So his ethos, his character, is also pathos. It's all related. It's all in him and who he is. 
And, and let me say it another way. There is no contradiction between the structure of God's logic and His authority and the way He reasons as the God of the universe. There's no contradiction between that, between the expression of His emotions. We say God is impassable in theology, meaning that His emotions, of course, are not predicated upon other things. Bless you. Firing them off one by one. <laughs> um, and it's not like God, oh, shoot, the Supreme Court, ah, that whole thing. And he gets flustered. God doesn't get flustered. Okay? But all of that's related to the demands of his power. And I want to bring this up because in the prophetic literature, we have each of those things. We'll see it in Isaiah. We'll definitely see it in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. So we feel all of those things as a reflection of, of God and who he is. And all of those things are highlighted. So God isn't just wholly distant and detached. So many, I mean, have, a lot of people grow up in the church and God's just this distant guy out there. And he's, he's just away from us and he's usually ticked, right? And that's how people view God. But he's not just that. He is present. He is active. He's the God of covenant. He is, he is here. He's among us. He's distinct from creation. Yes, but he's also intimately attending to the needs of, of us, of his people. And the prophets, they ministered in such a way with their evocative language and some of the actions that they did to make sure that you think it and you feel it and you believe it. They were silly enough to believe that their evangelism would actually work. Now the silence of Baal and of Israel, whose double-mindedness had left them beleaguered and perplexed, that's the antithesis of man, meaning if man doesn't want the triune God, guess what he chooses? Silence. I always say an atheist uh, shows his cards as soon as he opens his mouth. If he doesn't choose silence for the rest of his life, he has officially condemned himself. Because the minute he opens his mouth, he's already condemned himself. The fact that you have words and you're breathing God's air condemns you. So it's either God or silence. And why the silence? Well, because the minute he speaks, he condemns himself. So what is prophecy? What is this prophetic witness? Well, it is God speaking to man sometimes shouting, but in Elijah's case, sometimes whispering. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. I remembered it this week, and I had to go dig and find it. I couldn't remember where it was. But C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The prophets labored for the Lord, forsaking family, they forsaken friends, popularity. They, the world they lived in was wretched, it was disheveled, it was a mess. Oftentimes these prophets were hungry, lonely, oftentimes they were mocked, they were even put to death. Isaiah was sawed in half. He was put to death for his witness. Sawn in two. They weren't the popular crowd. The society in which they found themselves was breaking down. Apostasy was happening en masse. The culture they worked in had indulged itself in lust without any remorse. And that culture was blind, deaf, and only God's megaphone would rouse them. And that, friends, is what we're called to do. Jesus, the great prophet, priest, and king, he has called us to preach. He's called us to serve. You know, you, you think, what should we be doing for the kingdom? We should be preaching. We should be active. But, you know, it's not like everyone has to do the same thing, but we should be serving one another. We should be trying to find ways to serve other people. We should try to administer his kingdom to a deaf and dying world. And the prophets were agitators of the status quo. They were breaking up the false peace that lulls a disobedient people to sleep. And listen, church, do we have the courage to dislodge the idols from the town square? Because you have an option here, Okay. I mean, the fact that you're already here at Cross and Crown, I think I know what your response is, but do we have the boldness to confront sin and idolatry right where it lies? And do you fear God to the point that even when everyone around you is unfaithful, that you know that your job is to be faithful regardless? Even when you feel like you're alone, like Elijah, you must be faithful. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. You be faithful. 
So our witness, yes, it must be bold. And what meets the world is not, you know, it's not you and me as though we could ever save the world. We know that. But what meets the world is this transcendent relatedness of God, his pathos, his ethos, his logos, and what he demands. So to have the pathos of God, we know that nothing is neutral. God cares about what's going on. The only partiality God has is he's partial to justice. He cares about that. History is God's playing field. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the prophetic word. Let me end with this. <clears throat> we are called to take men alive by the prophetic relevancy of this inscripturated word here. To take men alive by it. Our activity in the world must prosecute people in terms of the covenant. Right? Are you praying for these people? <laughs> are you praying for the world around you? Are you praying for Falkyrians who we want to minister to? We want to persuade people in terms of the covenant to persuade them to drop their humanist autonomy of reason and drop it and say, I surrender to you, Lord Jesus. And three, we want to predict God's covenant sanctions laid out for us in the Bible. Like, you, you've heard all the talks, the food shortages stuff, the formula shortages, like reaping what we've sown for two years of nonsense. We can, we can predict it. We know where it's going to go. If we will not repent, things will go in a different direction. And we cannot choose to limp between two opinions, like the pro-life industry, for example. So Elijah's name, Elijah's name is Yahweh is God. That was his name. And that was his program for victory. There is a world that needs the truth. So we must go there. And we must go there single-mindedly and resolutely. And may we, like Elijah, not, too, not be too concerned and worried about where we came from or where we're going. But... The world needs the type of prophets that herald the truth, who die, and then are forgotten about. That's what the world needs. So don't be discouraged, because there's glory in that. There's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of Elijah. Uh, there's so much courage and boldness in his witness, and it's um, edifying. It's encouraging, Lord. And as we find ourselves in, a, in similar situations, God, I, I ask and pray that you would help us and aid us as we seek to minister, Lord. Uh, we need your Spirit's help. Father, we pray for this nation to repent, to be reformed, God, to be changed, to be set on fire by your Holy Spirit. We know that uh, this is not something we can accomplish. It is something that's in your sovereign care. So help us, Father, as we serve you, as we serve one another. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.